Returning to our program after a long hiatus is our special aviation correspondent, First Officer Vladimir Zaravika. Hi, Doug. It's nice to be here. As we air today, yesterday marked 100 years post Wilbur and Orville, Kitty Hawk. We sure have come a long way, haven't we? <laughs> well, I want you to talk about that a little bit. Um, just what that 100 years has meant. Some months back, Vlado, we talked about uh, who really could claim to be the father or fathers of flight, and you were quite an advocate for the Wright Brothers of Ohio. Yes, I am, and, and still continue to do so to this day. And I think, of course, this is their big day. December 17th, 1903 was when they made not one but four flights. And we were talking before the show about how that's kind of an important distinction. That is a distinction. As uh, uh, scientists will tell you, the, one of the important things of a, an experiment is, is its repeatability. Yeah. And all of the other claims to having had the first flight, uh, either the French or uh, New Zealanders or some other Americans, they were not able to continue to uh, sustain the experiment and do it over and over again, whilst the Wright brothers did it four times on that very day. Right. And the first flight is the one they commemorate of 120 feet, but... I think you and I agree that what's really significant is that it was the fourth flight that day, progressively longer flights, that was a sixth of a mile that says, yes, we're reproducing this. We got this down. Correct. Correct. In fact, interestingly enough, just this morning, I downloaded a a small simulator of the Wright Flyer Uh uh, on my computer, and I did the exact same thing that the Wright brothers did on the very first attempt which I believe was a Wilbur had tried, not on the 17th, but the, on the 14th of December. Wilbur uh, pulled back on the stick too hard, lifted the nose up, installed the aircraft, and it took him three days to repair it, oh. and then do, it, do the flight on the 17th. Well, I did the exact same thing on the simulator this morning. It's very touchy, and the nose of the right flyer came up and came crashing down. I, I gather it wasn't a good airplane. It just was the first valid airplane. It was just the first valid airplane. Okay. Yes. Difficult yes. to fly. Even on a simulator, yes. Well, let's go over a bit about some of the other claimants to the uh, the throne for uh, the father of the airplane, because it's come up, as, as NPR and other people have talked about this 100th year anniversary. Uh, a lot of folks have come forward to say, hey, it was my great uncle Richard Pierce that f- first flew back in New Zealand, etc. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, my understanding is Pierce did get a plane into the air, a bamboo-constructed uh, aircraft of sorts into the air several months before the Wright brothers, but he crashed into a hedge and never flew again. And I'm uh, a little unfamiliar with that. Was it uh, self-powered or was it a glider? Oh, it was No, it was a powered... He actually got an, air, an, an engine on board, I believe. And he flew into a hedge. Yes. Crashed into a hedge. I could do that with my car and it's still not an aircraft. <laughs> If we're going to take these types of claims, then we need to go all the way back, as we mentioned earlier, to Icarus and uh, Danelaus as having been the first individuals to have flown, and it was documented. Yes, yes. Well, uh, apparently Clement Adair was a Frenchman who, after the Wrights flew, said, hey, hey, I did that. I flew back in 1890 with a steam-powered aircraft. Not too many witnesses, but uh, I did it. A steam-powered aircraft. I, I, I don't know how he... I don't know... That, that it, on the face of it sounds rather preposterous, and steam engines are incredibly heavy. The, the Wright brothers had two uh, big technical hurdles. One of them was uh, the airfoil, which they uh, worked on in one of the, if, I believe it was the very first wind tunnel that they constructed themselves. The second uh, hurdle that they had was getting a power plant, an engine, that was light enough yet strong enough to 
be flown on the aircraft and produce enough power to uh, to get the aircraft going. I can't imagine a steam-powered contraption being able to lift anything of that nature. And it would be uh, really interesting to see some of the uh, plans that the uh, Frenchman allegedly has um, for his steam-powered aircraft. And they don't say it flew very well or that it was very controllable, but they, they're trying to claim later, well, he got into the air. Maybe he hopped off the ground. I don't know. Hopping doesn't count. Four <laughs> sustained flights in one day. They were the first. Well, since I, 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 I don't want to go two directions at once, um, I want to talk about the breakthroughs that the Wright brothers made because that is a fascinating uh, um, explanation of their success. But let's just talk about a couple other pretenders to the throne first. Um, Certainly, for entertainment purposes only. Um, uh, Alberto Santos Dumont. When you go to Rio de Janeiro, which I did there last summer, the Santos Dumont Airport is named after what the, who Brazilians consider to be the father of aviation. Now, Dumont apparently did fly, but by everyone's account, is um, a, a reasonable aircraft that that met all the criteria that you know for a modern aircraft. But he did so in like 1906, and the reason that this was recognized as the you know the first flight was that people were not aware of what the Wrights had been accomplishing. This is true, and also uh, Santos Dumont. I believe he gets the first uh, publicly viewed flight yes. by a crowd instead of yes. just a, a, a small boy and some uh, lifeguards. <laughs> and But uh, as you mentioned, the, the Wright brothers being extremely wary, and rightfully so, of uh, patent infringements, uh, kept uh, their accomplishments secret from the public, however, still fully documented with uh, pictures. One of right. the most famous aviation pictures that, that we have of all time is of the, that uh, day. Yes, which I find that curious. They actually took, the, they were sensible enough to actually photograph that day in Kitty Hawk, so the pictures do exist of them taking off. But even Scientific American, December 2003, uh, somewhat somewhat defensively talking about how, well, you know, of course we didn't know that the Wright Brothers, that they were just so damn secretive. And uh, the Wright brother, the um, the Scientific American, and particularly the Smithsonian Institute, took a lot of grief for the fact that they did not recognize the rights. And um, and speaking of the Smithsonian, let's address the issue of Samuel Pierpont Langley. Oh, all right. The secretary of the Smithsonian Institute, who was also intent upon becoming the world's first aviator with a powered aircraft, and he actually succeeded succeeded in creating the first powered aircraft that flew, but it didn't have a man on board. First powered drone, if, okay. if you will. All right. The father of the drone <laughs> is undisputable. <laughs> but uh, he went to build an aircraft with a man on board and apparently tried to launch off of the uh, of a houseboat on the Potomac River some months before the, uh, the rights and crashed. It flew straight into the river. Uh, I guess it was actually a few days before the rights, they, this, this catapult failed. Yeah, that was another thing, uh, that uh, Langley's uh, so-called aircraft was catapulted off of a, a ship on the Potomac. Now, although catapults in aviation, as far as the Navy is concerned, is, is uh, uh, necessary and impressive, however, it's still not truly the first powered aircraft flight, as was the Wright brothers. Yeah, the Wrights actually wound up using catapults as well because they are sort of an effective way to help you get into the air. But it wasn't necessary. At one point. Yeah. This is true. They did so in their experimentation. On that very first day, the aircraft powered itself into the air. 
let's talk a bit about uh, what led to the Wright brothers' success. Uh, um, Scientific American points out that it's not true that uh, that the Wright brothers were these crazy inventors that everybody said, oh, you know, well, no one will ever fly. And uh, they actually, there were people that knew that eventually we'd be able to do it. Although, I understand you actually looked up some, some notable quotes of people predicting failure. One, one quote was from a mathematics professor at John Hopkins University, a contemporary of theirs at the time. His name is uh, Simon Newcomb, who said that a powered flight is unpractical and insignificant, if not utterly impossible. <laughs> yeah. But we should uh, we should also point out that we, as Americans, perhaps focus in on the success of the boys from Ohio, but that powered flight through Zeppelins was pretty much a going concern by that time. This is true. Uh, if we were to speak completely technically correctly, it would be the first powered heavier-than-air craft. Yes. The and modern airplane, because the, let's face it, the Zeppelin and the blimp have, have always found limited uses. This is true. This is one of the the reasons for the limited uses is uh, the speed. Yeah, they're slow. And the uh, the Wright brothers broke their own first uh, uh, speed record, if you will. Their very first aircraft sale was to the U.S. Army, and actually received a five thousand dollar bonus because the aircraft flew uh, five miles an hour faster than what the uh, Army had expected and intended it to do. Right. Right. So from the get-go in aviation, speed was of importance. And from the get-go, the, the, the main application of the airplane was in warfare. But let's come to that in a second. Okay. Um, the Wright brothers had several problems to solve. You had to basically get an airfoil, something that would lift, get you in the air. Now, apparently uh, Otto Lilienthal and others had, uh, had developed pretty first-class gliders. Yes, they had. It had been flying them for, uh, I think, Lilenthal flew 2,000 different yeah, uh, a lot uh, flights. of flights. And in, in uh, the book about the Wright brothers uh, called The Bishop's Boys, it, uh, they in, their, in the book state themselves that they, for the most part, did not come up with anything new. They were, in a way, more scientific in their approach, where they gathered as much data as they could of the work of others, compiled it together did their own experiments, both uh, theoretical and practical, in building the uh, the wind tunnel for both the airfoil and the propeller, which is Which, which is, is fairly airfoil. significant, though. I mean, it, what, what genius it was to decide, we, we have a small model, will it fly? Well, let's test it by, by running air over the surfaces of this model. Indeed, indeed. And their genius may have been in using the work of others to make the whole greater than the sum of the individual parts. I don't know whether you caught this, uh, on, it was on NPR and on Nova, but apparently aeronautics historian Tom Crouch has really gotten into how the boys did it, and uh, he's written a book. He actually is the author of the book you cited, The Bishop's Boys, mm-hmm. and uh, Crouch was fascinating when I heard him on, on NPR. I just couldn't, I just, I had to like, had an assignment, I had to like stop and listen before I did what I wanted to do, because it was so intriguing. He's describing Wilbur or Orville or someone on a bicycle, because they were bicycle manufacturers, you know, driving around with a little gauge, measuring how much lift they got off of a wing and deciding, you know, we have to do something about this because the numbers we've been given by other pioneers before us is just not, it's not accurate. Yeah, this is true. They, they, they took the information that was already out there, experimented with it, and came up to, with their own conclusions. That's, uh, is that not the defin or a definition of engineering? Yeah. Well, Michael Hart, a book we love to cite on this program, the, uh, the 100, a ranking of the most influential persons in history, and we're going to have Dr. Hart on the show in the months to come. Uh, he 
of course, tried to assess who made the biggest difference throughout the course of history, and he ranked the rights pretty high, 28. He considered them as one unit because it was hard to say where one stopped and the other began, but he said how high you rank them pretty much depends on how high you rank aviation because these guys clearly are the key figures to modern aviation. But Hart cites in the book that um, these guys were so good that they actually took props and built the world's best props. To they pr- did. Hand-carved them. Yes. Because the props were trial and error affairs, and they trial and error until they got it right. Still considered to be very good props this many years later, 100 years later. Yes, yes, they are. Um, in fact, that that in itself is, is just achievement in woodsmanship, if you will. Yeah. Because the propeller needs to be nearly perfectly balanced. And to hand-carve a propeller to make it perfectly balanced and still work on the aircraft without having any uh, type of template or design previously is uh, amazing in and of itself. I hadn't even thought about that till you you say. I mean, the the hand carving a prop and getting it right? That's why I'm the aviation expert (laughs) on the show. Yes, you are. But but um, the even probably even more remarkable example that that Hart cites, and and I think that uh, Mr. uh, or is it maybe Dr. Crouch cites, is that the power plants they wanted to use just didn't quite have enough oomph. So the boys sat down and built an engine that had a better power to weight ratio than anything else available. Indeed they did. Which is, I mean, that's just an, a side issue of a problem they had to solve and, and they did it. They did. And, and now the, uh, if you think of the modern aircraft, it's uh, so specialized that you've got engine engineers, you've got uh, airfoil engineers, you've got aerodynamic engineers. Uh, the Wright brothers were all of this in one using very, very limited uh, previous data. Yeah. Therein lies their true genius, and therein lies the fact that they should get full credit for this. <laughs> well, in, I, I'm, I'm not arguing. But I guess I guess they used it. Was it an alloy? I mean, I'm still sort of fascinated by the fact that they have a 1903 internal combustion engine. They're thinking, we can use one of these things to fly an airplane. And not only that, they came up with a, uh, a belt gearing mechanism where the the engine camshaft spinning spun two propellers simultaneously clever boys that they were i don't believe they actually graduated high school i i don't remember from from reading the book whether they they had or not but uh, they they truly were uh, geniuses so i guess um in the wake of 1903 the wright brothers get a little paranoid with good reason about possible uh, infringements of what they've accomplished so they're a little secretive but by 1908 other claimants are coming along santos dumont apparently um i guess glenn curtis wins a prize can somebody fly an airplane a certain amount of time and certain distance whatever it was and curtis comes out and does it and the Wrights just bypass the competition because they know they can do it and they're, they're looking forward beyond that one of their goals was to uh sell their aircraft uh, to the U.S. military. And part of the reasons that, uh, one of the reasons that this took so long to do was the Wright brothers' secrecy and the U.S. military having had a bad experience with too many flaky inventors and claims and promises. So it took a while for the Wright brothers and the uh, army to get together on what is expected, what, what they want, and whether this could happen at all. And that was the first purchaser of an aircraft was the U.S. military. We're speaking today with First Officer Vlado Zaravica, Radio Parallax's aviation special correspondent about the 100th anniversary of the Wright Brothers. 
And I guess ramping up to the, their final, you know, making it by getting a contract with the military, um, it was a bit, of a, a bit of a rough go. The Herald Tribune in 1906 apparently carried an article on the Wright Brothers with a headline, Flyers or Liars? <laughs> Which prompted them to get mad and go over to France and give public demonstrations of what they could do that everybody, everybody just went, oh my God. We're, we're dabbling with airplanes. These guys have a real airplane. They were flying. They were circling. It was a completely controlled flight. Uh, they were achieving altitudes. And uh, I don't think anybody who had seen the Wright Flyer or the Wright Brothers flying had any doubt as to who was the leader in aviation at the time. So uh, obviously they knew it had potential, they knew it might change the world, and they knew money would be made from it. And so did a lot of other people. And of course, as is a great American tradition, no sooner does someone come up with a great idea, but someone else decides he's going to steal it and make a, a quicker buck off of it. Are you talking about Curtis? Well, I wasn't necessarily specifically talking about him, but let's talk about him. Glenn Curtis apparently uh, decided to horn in on some of the patents of the rights, and started building aircraft that was using some of their innovations, and, and he decided not to pay them for the patents they owned. I think that Curtis had a lot to do with this controversy over who flew first because Curtis decided that if Samuel Pierpont Langley's airplane had really worked, well then, what are these Wright brothers trying to claim that they're the fathers of aviation, blah, blah, blah. So he basically built a reproduction of Langley's aircraft, changing 30 things in it to make it more airworthy, flies it and says, see? One of the, the problems there, well, of the many problems there is the phrase would have. <laughs> There's a difference between would have and did. Uh -huh. The Wright brothers did. Mm -hmm. And also, as you mentioned, the, the uh, 30 changes uh, years later, where at, at the explosive pace that aviation was growing and innovations were coming about, even from one Wright flyer to the next, as they improved from aircraft to aircraft in the months, it's... If you use computer terms, it's many generations of software later yeah. that he added these innovations. It would be like uh, adding Windows to an old uh, 1980s computer and saying, <laughs> hey, see, it would have worked there, too. Right. Well, the rights, uh, I guess at least Orville was able to, uh, to, to, to reap quite a financial benefit. I think, he so I think he actually got out of aviation in 1915, sold it out, probably made a million bucks, and, and said... That's enough of this. And he became the grand statesman, if you will, of uh, aviation, served on uh, many uh, think tanks and uh, also government aviation uh, committees. And he also lived long enough to see the jet age come in. And we should mention that actually, sadly, it was Wilbur who was the older brother who originally had the idea for the flying machine. They were basically, I suppose, equal contributors after the fact, but it was originally Wilbur's idea and unfortunately... In a previous era, we didn't have perhaps the medicines uh, and technology for healthcare that we do today. Wilbur contracted typhoid fever and passed away in 1912, which is which is at the age of 45. Very sad. It, it is, and you wonder had his brother lived to the uh, to a ripe old age, and had they decided to stay in aviation instead of uh, basically pulling out, if they could have continued to come up with uh, innovations. Uh, that would have put us now, 100 years later, further along in uh, flight, both in the atmosphere and maybe even in space. Well, I think that perhaps that once, uh, once Wilbur had died, I think Orville, I think, decided he didn't really have the heart to go it alone. I mean, I'm speculating, but it certainly seems reasonable to imagine that by 1915, he didn't have his heart in it like he did before. 
So uh, we, let's come back to that issue that we deferred about the first uh, applications of airplanes, which appears to have been in warfare. Uh, true. It was the Signal Corps that really wanted uh, the aircraft, and one of the reasons was for a, a quicker uh, communication and dispatching. Another one was for observations. And yeah. Fly out where are the troops, they're massed over here, fly back, the, the, the main body of the of your opposition is over Correct. here. Correct. Yeah. Correct. It was basically intelligence gathering and right. dissemination rather than an actual weapon right. of war. So how did we evolve into this Baron uh, Manfred von Richthofen, 80, 80 kills, uh, dogfights, the legendary uh, uh, single combat of World War One? And interestingly enough, the uh, in the First World War, where the uh, aircraft were used, at uh, first they were used just as that, observation platforms. And the pilots, uh, there's even accounts that in the first few days of the war, the pilots are waving at each other from different sides as they're going back and forth across the trenches. Yeah, And then as the... Uh, the legend and myth of aviation, if you will, goes, they started uh, throwing bricks at each other and shooting handguns and shotguns at one another. <laughs> Usually there was the pilot and an observer in those aircraft. Is it true that some guys actually blew their own props off, forgetting the fact that there was a spinning... Uh... Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. And that was, the, the as far as uh, aircraft of war concerned, the very first hurdle that needed to be... Uh, overcome is uh, how to shoot a gun, a machine gun from an aircraft. And they realized that the easiest thing to do would be to actually point the aircraft as a gun, however the propeller was in the way. And that led to some, some innovations on both sides. And the but shots it, went between the blades. The shots went between the blades, or the first working one was uh, invented by the French where a little metal triangle was placed on the back of the blade where if the bullet would hit the propeller blade as it was spinning the triangle would deflect the blade to the side hmm. so some of the shots were just getting deflected and randomly and some were getting through but it was uh the the germans that came up with the uh braking mechanism where the machine gun would not fire when the propeller was in the way well, in the 20s, in the wake of, uh, of, of disarmament, I guess a lot of these uh, Curtis Jennies, at this point, Glenn Curtis had become you know, quite the aviation uh, uh, mogul, and his biplanes were, I guess, the basis for a whole future generation of... Pilots, flight. barnstormers. And, and trainers of World War II. Yes, yes, they were. And I will give uh, uh, Curtis credit for doing a great deal to romanticize uh aviation in the fact that he he did produce enough aircraft and he produced produced aircraft that were used as barnstormers and uh also in early uh postal mail routes so one of the earliest forays into commercial aviation instead of military aviation well we we hope to have on this program uh, none other than general chuck yeager in the weeks to come he's uh, his people have uh, have agreed to to, to, to talk to us I think he'll have some very interesting things to say about uh, aviation from World War II forward. So maybe we'll, uh, well, maybe we'll insert a hiatus at this point and have you come back after we've had the opportunity to talk to, to the general. Certainly. He is a living legend. He's, he is a pioneer in aviation, and I can't wait to hear the show. Let's leapfrog over, uh, over the X-1 and over World War II to the present time where we see that aviation is a tremendous part of all of our lives. It is indeed. It's, uh, if, if any indication of what uh, life, modern life would be like, 
without aviation, uh, just harken back to the first week or so after uh, the unfortunate tragedy of 9-11, where yes. all of aviation was grounded. Yes. And that that show, fortunately, that was only for a week or so, but uh, it showed how important aviation is at any given point in time. I mean, we so, we so take for granted, and this, this just does blow my mind, we just take for granted that we can pack our bags, get in our car, drive down and, and, and board this cylinder of aluminum that will literally leapfrog over an ocean and deposit us on another continent a half day later. Not only that, but we get extremely irate if there's even the smallest glitch <laughs> in this flight, not realizing that there are literally thousands and thousands of these going on simultaneously. Any closing thoughts about the, this hundred year now, a full century of aviation? Uh, you 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 fly airplanes. You are a professional uh, pilot. Yes, I'm. A, I'm a professional pilot, and as such, one of the things that strikes me is so much has been uh, talked about the Wright brothers' genius in building the first aircraft, and of course that is phenomenal, and I give them full credit. However, little is said about the fact that the fir- for the first maybe even decade or so. They not only built the aircraft, they learned to fly it. They taught themselves to fly it. Right. They were the first pilots. And having been a flight instructor myself for years <laughs> on end, I can't imagine having tried to learn to do that just by trial and error, where the error is quite possibly a fatality. Yes. So th- that that is has to add to their brilliance. Even if, if you give credit to making of the first aircraft to other in- individuals, whoever it may be, the Wright brothers were clearly the first pilots, and they taught themselves. The first flight instructor slash pilots. <laughs> Indeed. We've left out a lot in, in, in our <laughs> We've left out a hundred years worth, haven't we? All right, we got more to say, so come back uh, next year, the early next year, and let's, let's talk more about it, because as you know, you and I both are quite big fans of the subject of aviation. I'd be happy to, Doug. Thanks once again to First Officer Vladimir Zaravika, our special aviation correspondent. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and you're listening to KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Stay tuned after the break for Stephanie Bergsma and Michael Lazar. They'll be discussing the $200 million donation from the estate of Joan Kroc to National Public Radio. Come on, fly with me. Let's take off in the blue. Once I get you up there where the air is rarefied. We'll just glide starry-eyed Once I get you up there I'll be holding you so very near 